Good morning. Kind of make your way on back to your seats. There was a time before I think I existed that door-to-door salesmen were more of a reality than they are in our world today. Uh, I think the only image I really have of door-to-door salesmen is like television depiction of a door-to-door salesman. I don't think I've ever actually experienced one in my life. Um, But I understand how they work in principle, and and their first goal is to get you to open the door. Their second goal is to make it into your home so that they can actually demonstrate the truth of the product that they're telling you about. So they don't want to just tell you about the really sharp knives that are amazing. They want to make it into your kitchen and cut a penny in half. Or they don't want to just tell you about how great their vacuum cleaner is compared to yours. They want to come into your living room and spill some stuff on your floor and then vacuum it up like it never happened. They want to, they want to apply the truth that they're telling you about. That's their goal. There's a, a pastor at a church in Denton, Texas. His name is Tom Nelson. And, and he says frequently that one of the challenges of living a Christian life is that you have to peddle applied truth. You've got to be talking about a gospel that actually plays itself out in your life. You can't just offer up truth of a Savior who died on the cross for our sin and has not only purchased us freedom from sin and eternity in heaven with Him, but has also given us the power to overcome sin. You can't just talk about that. You've got to actually apply it in your life. You've got to peddle applied truth. That's the way Tom Nelson describes that. What we're looking at here in 1 Peter is a picture of applied truth. For 12 verses at the very beginning of 1 Peter, Peter laid out the foundational truths of who we are in Christ and what we have because of what Christ has done for us and all that that means for us, some of the implications of that. And now we've been working through his application of those things. If the gospel doesn't have the power to actually impact your life, then it becomes challenging to talk to people about the power of the gospel, if that makes sense. It's circular, but for a reason. Today we're going to talk about what the application of some of the outlined truths that Peter has given us. We're going to talk about what those look like within a home and within a marriage. The longer that I have been married, uh, the more I have come to see that if the gospel doesn't have the power to influence and transform and impact my relationship, my closest earthly relationship, that being with my wife, then I'm not sure the gospel has the power to impact and transform any of the relationships that I have. If the gospel isn't radically transformative within your home, Where are you going to allow the gospel to be radically transformative? If you can't apply the truth of the gospel in your marriage and inside your home, then it's not going to make much sense to talk about the gospel outside of your home. This passage today is uh, understandably sensitive and tricky. And I had someone in between first and second service say, you can always tell how socially uh, sensitive a topic is when the pastor spends a third of his message 
talking about the dynamite before he actually lets anyone look at the dynamite. And that's absolutely true. Uh, We're going to spend a decent amount of time this morning trying to make sure we get the context of this passage right, both within 1 Peter and within the Bible in a larger sense, and also within the the cultural time that Peter wrote to. Then we're going to look at what is the principle that Peter is trying to out kind of outline for us. And then finally, we'll talk about some very practical kind of applications of that. Context, principle, application. That's the way we're going to move. And we are going to give considerable time to the context. Because if we get the context wrong, we'll get the passage wrong. And if we get the passage wrong, it leads to some of the abuses that have taken place with a passage of Scripture like this throughout history. Uh, I want to read 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7, and then uh, we'll dive into the context together. Peter says, Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I want to just turn back, if you will, so 1 Peter chapter 1, so if you've got your Bible and that requires a page flip or you just need to look over, whatever the case might be, we're going to look at some of the large headings here in 1 Peter. And that's going to kind of track where we've come up to this point because how Peter arrives at all of these passages about submission flows directly out of the things he's already said throughout the letter. Peter begins with a statement of some very general Yet at the same time, incredibly important and personal truths about who we are as Christians and who Christ is and what the gospel means. In my Bible, right over the top of verse 3, it says, born again to a living hope. That's the gist of the truth that Peter is trying to lay out. That if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have been born again. You're a new creation. And because you're a new creation, this is not your home. You've been given a new home. It's indestructible, it's eternal, and it can't be taken away from you. There's nothing that could happen here on this earth that could alter that eternal reality that Jesus Christ bought for you with his blood and that you gained by faith in him. Sure, there might be some suffering, there might be some challenges because of your faith. The way that you live, the holy life that you try to adopt might attract attention to you and cause some suffering or some persecution, but that's just temporary. Your home is eternal. And then if you drop down to verse 13, Peter begins a discussion about holiness. He gives a general call to all believers, based on the truth of the gospel, to live a holy or set-apart life. He gives motivation for that. He says that we've got relationship with a loving Father. We've got a reverent fear. The same Father that loves us is also going to judge. He's going to judge impartially. We also have an understanding of the cost of redemption. That Jesus Christ was sent by God 
to live a perfect, sinless life, die the death that sinful humanity deserved to die, taking our sin to the cross with him, that by faith in his work and in his resurrection, we might have forgiveness for sin. That that was costly. And that that relationship, that reverent fear, and the understanding of redemption would motivate you to wake up every single morning and wrestle with your own sinful flesh. That you would wake up and say, because of the truths of the gospel, and because of a relationship and an impartial God who's going to judge one day, and because of the cost of redemption, I'm going to just wrestle with my own brokenness so as to live this set-apart kind of life for the glory of the Lord. And then he moves on in chapter 2, and he talks about how that's actually communal. That holy living is something that the church, all of us, do together. That everyone who's been uh, forgiven thanks to their faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross embarks on this together. We're a holy nation, all of us, together, called by God, his chosen people, a royal priesthood. All of us together with access to the Lord through Jesus Christ who intercedes for us. We're a holy temple being built together because the presence of the Lord's Spirit dwells within believers. And we hold that out to the world. And that through that, they should see the gospel. Through our set-apart kind of living as a body of believers, people would see Jesus. They would see the power of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he gives a final encouragement. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. The reason that you would wrestle with your sinful nature and that we would undertake this as a body of believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, driven and motivated by the gospel, is that other people would see and that they would glorify the Lord. And then Peter sets about applying all of that truth. And he begins his application in a very real-world kind of setting for his audience. And it has to do with the relationships that they interact with in their society. And the whole thing hinges on this word submission. We've talked over the last few weeks about what submission is. Submission is to willingly place yourself under the ordained authority of another willingly place yourself under the authority of another. And Peter talked about what that looks like in terms of citizens and the government, and he talked about slaves and masters, and today we're going to look at what he has to say in terms of husbands and wives within the context of your marriage. All of that runs from chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 7. I just want to give you a couple of quick observations about that entire passage taken together. The first is this. It was intended to be an encouragement. We read it, and we see some sort of degrading or degradation of some sort. We, we think that because we're individual, autonomous Americans who hold our individuality supreme, that for anyone to offer me any sort of idea of submission, that that can't be an encouragement. That's like a slap in the face. That's not what Peter intended. Peter intended to write all of these as encouragements to believers that they could hold on to and kind of hang their hat on, if you will, as they sought to live out the gospel in their relationships in the world. That includes how we relate to the government. 
That includes an encouragement to how slaves would relate to a master, and it includes an encouragement about how husbands and wives would relate to one another. The reason that it can be an encouragement is because of the truth of of verses 1 through 12 in chapter 1, that this isn't your home. You have an indestructible inheritance. So no matter how bad the government gets, no matter how bad the master is, it's temporary, and you can submit for the Lord's sake because he's set up for you something eternal that can't be taken away, that's far greater than anything you might experience here on this earth. Encouragement. It's going to be okay. He says, citizens, it's going to be okay if the government isn't, per- isn't perfect, or even if it oppresses or persecutes you. You can submit respectfully to the government for the Lord's sake. And then he says, slaves, it's going to be okay even if your master is harsh and unjust. You can submit enduringly for the Lord's sake because he is your true master and he is eternally just. And today we're going to see that wives and husbands can submit lovingly to one another for the Lord's sake. The first observation is that this was intended to be an encouragement. We've turned it into something different. The second is this. Peter understands the brokenness of the figure in power. Peter understands the brokenness of the figure in power. In fact, that's why he wrote each of these sections to who? The one submitting. It was an encouragement to the one submitting. Look at what he says about the government. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors. What are are they supposed to do? Well, they're sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Well, what happens when that's not the case? What happens if they're punishing what is good and rewarding what is evil? Peter says, it's okay, you can submit because this isn't home. It's temporary. And in the midst of your submission, people will see the gospel. Look at what he has to say about slaves and masters. He says that you can submit even to a master who is harsh and unjust. Verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. What happens if I get a master who is physically harmful to me? What am I supposed to do? And we talked about how look for a way out. Peter, or Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 7. You can find a way out. If you've got a way out, take it. But if you don't, you can submit. It's okay because this is temporary. It's an encouragement. An encouragement. He's also going to show here when we get in to verses 1 through 7 in chapter 3 that he understands that husbands aren't perfect. Your husband might not be a believer. Or even if your husband is a believer, he might make a decision that puts you in a weird position, and it's okay. It's okay. Last observation is this. These verses have been used sinfully um, by those in power in order to oppress those under their power. It's been used by governments throughout history in order to silence those that they govern. It's been used by people within our own history to perpetuate a very sinful and wicked practice of racial slavery. It's also been used by husbands throughout history to silence their wives, sometimes even in the midst of abusive relationships. Those are sinful and twisted uses of this passage of Scripture and not what they were intended for. Peter did not write these to government officials. He did not write these to masters. 
He made one verse statement to husbands, but primarily wrote to wives. These were not written to give those in power the ability to wield their power in a sinful way. They were written as an encouragement to those who are called into these roles of submission. Biblically, in a wider context, it's important to understand that this isn't the only passage within the New Testament that talks about how husbands and wives relate to one another. In Ephesians, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In Colossians, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. One of the key features that the Bible gives us in terms of husbands and wives relating to one another is that the biblical command is one of reciprocity. There's a calling on both sides of this equation. There's a calling for wives and there's a calling for husbands. And both are important. The biblical command for husbands and wives is one of reciprocity. There's another key feature in this, and that's that husbands and wives have different roles. We'll talk about it a little bit more later, but different roles does not equate to different value. It also does not equate to different levels of importance. It's just a different role. Think about any sports team or any team within the business place. Everybody's got a different role. On a football field, 11 people, 11 different roles, but you remove one and the whole thing falls apart. It's not a statement of lesser value or lesser importance. It's just a different role. And then finally, in a historical context, we talked last week about the fact that slaves were property, that they didn't have rights. The unfortunate reality for women in the first century is that they were also often, often viewed as property. And apart from their husband, didn't have many rights. Sometimes they found themselves in marriage not because they willingly entered into it, but because they were given into it or they were even purchased into it. What's most radical about what we see here in this scripture is that Peter addressed wives specifically. It's also incredibly radical that he intentionally and specifically addressed slaves. For him to do so was to both subvert what was standard culture at the time, but he also, in this masterful sort of way, upheld it because he does affirm the authority of certain people. But then he says to those under that authority, your ultimate allegiance isn't to that master. It isn't to that government. It isn't to that husband. It's to the Lord. You don't have to fear the government. You don't have to fear that master. You don't have to fear that husband. You are a servant of the Lord. And so now it's okay for us to touch the dynamite. We're just going to walk our way through these seven verses and see what the principle is that Peter gives. He gives some principles to wives. He gives some principles to husbands. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. The likewise there refers back to for the Lord's sake. Just like we submitted to the government for the Lord's sake, slaves submitted to their masters for the Lord's sake. Likewise, here, for the Lord's sake, be subject to your own husband. Women, you're not just subject to the general idea of husbandry out there. You're subject to your own husband. It's not just anyone who happens to be a husband and you happen to be a wife, you submit. That's not how this works. Be subject, submit to your own husband. Why? So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives. Peter's message here is to both wives of believing and non-believing husbands. 
Not obeying the word means they haven't placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They haven't trusted the gospel. Peter understands that some of the women reading this letter would be living in a marriage where the husband is not a believer. And he says in that situation, even if some of them do not obey the word, your submission in that relationship in some way points them to the gospel. It displays the gospel within your home. The assumption here is that the unbelieving husband has heard the message. He says they can be won over without words. Instead of constantly preaching at that individual, Peter says, no, the encouragement is to allow your conduct to display the power of your message. And I think that's a general encouragement that we all can apply in all areas of our life. That scripture makes it clear that at times it's appropriate to use our words to convey the gospel. And at other times, it's equally as important to allow our conduct, our actions, to display the power of the message that we're speaking. Conduct is incredibly important. Then he moves on to a discussion about external adornment. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart and the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Why in the world bring this up at all at this place? I think that's a fair question. I think it's because what exists in our world today, in the minds of a lot of women, unfortunately exists today, also unfortunately existed then. And that's, maybe if I look a certain way, this man will respect me. Maybe if I'm beautiful enough, this man will honor me and treat me well. In a society where women were often given in to marriage without their opinion offered or asked for at all, in a society where women didn't have any rights, where they were viewed as property, I think it would have been very easy for a woman to think to herself, this man that just views himself as greater than me and over the top of me, if I look a certain way every single day and he thinks I'm beautiful enough, maybe he'll treat me better. And Peter says, you have freedom from that. You don't have to be subject to the opinion of the man that exists within your home. That what defines you, wives, is not that man's opinion of your beauty. It's that the Lord sees a beautiful and transformed heart within you. And you're free to give yourself to that. Unfortunately, in our world today, where women aren't property, it still exists within the minds of a lot of women that they have to look a particular way in order for their husband to respect them or to honor them or to care about them or to love them. And that is heartbreaking and unfortunate. These words here are for you too. You have freedom from that. You have worth not because of the way that you look, but because you are a child of the Lord. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have worth because he sent his son, to die on your behalf. You don't have to spend all your time and all your money on the things that you wear or the makeup that you put on or the jewelry that you buy in order for a man to think highly of you. One man went to the cross for you already. And that should be enough. You have freedom from that stuff. No amount of expensive clothing or jewelry can reproduce the beauty of a heart that's transformed by the gospel. Peter says that heart looks like a gentle and quiet spirit, which doesn't mean weak. 
It doesn't mean women that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you submit, you've got to have this weak and kind of timid spirit. In fact, I would say almost the opposite. You've got a peaceful spirit that is incredibly strong thanks to your identity in the gospel. If you've ever been up in the mountains kind of past peak snowmelt season, you've probably seen streams that at one time look like they fill a wide area and would be rushing full of water, but at the moment are kind of calm and placid and peaceful. There's power in the same water that's peaceful there. You've got a gentle and quiet spirit, but it's strong at the same time. And then he goes on and he gives an illustration. He talks about holy women of the past who hoped in God, but really he drills down to Sarah, who was the wife of Abraham. If you know much about Sarah and Abraham's story, you know that at certain times, Abraham gave Sarah some difficult instructions. At one point, they had a conversation that went something like this. I want you to pretend to be my sister instead of my wife. Imagine her response. Say what? You want me to, you want me to pretend to be who? I would imagine that at that point, there was a vigorous back and forth conversation about the ridiculousness of this idea. And yet, what we see in scripture is that Abraham said, this is what I think we need to do. This is the decision I'm making. And and Sarah submitted there, despite the fact that it was potentially challenging and maybe even a dangerous decision. Peter says, that's an example to look to, that you're a, a daughter of hers if you are willing to submit in the same way. You can entrust yourself to the Lord in that moment and submit even if you disagree with your husband's decision. And then Peter turns his attention to husbands. He says, likewise, again, for the Lord's sake, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, that reads, live with your wives according to all knowledge, which begs the question, what kind of knowledge? Knowledge of what? I offer two things. The call here for husbands is to live with your wives in all knowledge and full knowledge of the gospel. Husbands, if you're here this morning and you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, that is your starting point. That you would have a knowledge and understanding of the gospel. If you're here this morning and you say to yourself, I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, but I'm not actually really certain what that means that should look like in my life. I don't understand. I don't have a full knowledge of how the gospel plays out in my various relationships and in the things that I do or think or say or the way I view the world or how I live. It is your biblical call, husbands, to sort that out which means you might need to get into our men's ministry. You may need to get into a discipleship or a mentoring relationship. You may just need to begin to cultivate the practice of opening your Bible and seeing what God's Word has to say to you about what it looks like to live with full knowledge of the gospel. The second full knowledge that we should have as husbands is a full knowledge of our spouse. The media or pop culture today depicts husbands as aloof and disinterested and disengaged. Living with a full knowledge of your spouse means that we have got to completely reject that and move toward our spouses at all times. Over the last few weeks, Kurt, uh, our new associate pastor, and I have had a few conversations, and he's used the same illustration a couple times. He says that the default for much of uh, American marriage is to put the marriage on cruise control, but that that car never cruises in a positive direction. 
Husbands, our calling as husbands with our wives is to pursue them intentionally for the entirety of our marriage that we might know them fully. And it should be our joy and our privilege and our glory to just unlock the fullness of their potential in the Lord and see them absolutely come alive as to who God made them and how he wants to use them for his glory in the world. Full knowledge of your spouse means that you at all times are knowing her well enough to know what those things are so that you can turn her loose in order to do them. Husbands, you relate to your wives with full knowledge of the gospel and full knowledge of your spouse. And you may need to invest time in one or both of those things. Peter uses a phrase here that in our uh, world today is likely uncomfortable. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. I do want to address that briefly. At times, this has been used to claim that women are somehow weaker emotionally or intellectually or morally or spiritually, and those are all flat wrong. This is purely physical in nature. Peter's making a statement that, in general, women are the physically weaker of the two sexes. Now, I do want to also point this out. I'm a very small male. There exists in the world a multitude of women who are physically stronger than me. But Peter's making a general statement that I think carries an important implication for husbands. It means this, that in general, because you are the physically stronger of the two vessels or sexes, you must be willing, husbands, to offer yourself physically for the protection of your spouse, even if that potentially means your own harm that you would be willing to give of yourself, to sacrifice yourself in that sort of way. And then Peter underlies this whole thing for husbands by saying, since or because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. I love the way Wayne Grudem says this. I think he's succinct with it, so I'm just going to let it stand on its own. He says, this reminds husbands that even though they have been, been given greater authority within marriage, their wives are equal to them in spiritual privilege and eternal importance. Differing roles within marriage do not equate to differing levels of importance among sexes. A different role, but not a different value. You're co-heirs as believers. Women have been given the exact same privileges thanks to the gospel that men have been given. You've got a different role within your marriage, but eternally you've been given the same gifts. It's a distortion of God's truth and a sinful attitude to think otherwise in any sort of way. Husbands, let me wrap up by saying this. Our call is to submit to the Lord and to sacrifice for our spouse. That's the principle. If you're here and you're unmarried, and you're asking yourself, how in the world does this apply to me today? A passage like this, or the one in Ephesians, or the one in in, uh, Colossians, ought to help inform you what you should be looking for in a spouse. Ladies, if you're here today and you're not married, You should be looking for a man who gives himself fully to the Lord. Who's willing to give of himself to the church and to brothers and sisters in Christ and to the cause of the kingdom and the gospel because that is a man who's going to be willing to give himself to you. Sacrificially. Guys, if you're here this morning and you're not married, you're asking, what in the world does this have to do with me? You want to look for a woman who stands firmly on her identity in the gospel. 
She has a gentle and a quiet spirit that is peaceful because she knows the strength given to her thanks to the gospel. That's the kind of woman you're looking for. These kinds of passages ought to model a picture of your marriage in the future and inform your current decisions. Submission in marriage ultimately offers a picture of the gospel for the Lord's sake. Now I want to take these and apply some real life questions to how does this actually play itself out? Understanding the context, I get the principle, but in real life, what does this actually look like? Here are some questions I think logically come up. Um, These aren't exhaustive in any way, but I think it's important that we answer them. What about areas of gifting within the home or within my marriage? There are absolutely areas within a family, in my opinion, where the wife can and should take the lead. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it's incumbent upon a husband to identify the gifts and talents and abilities and passions of his wife and then give those over to her for the good of your family. I do this here at the church. It's part of leading this church that I say, Brian is the best one at worship here. My leadership is to say, Brian, do that really well for our sake. Libby and Catherine are really good with our children. And I say, do that really well for the sake of our church. Within your home, husbands, if there's something that your wife is just better at than you, it's part of your leadership to say, do that for the good of our family. Do that for the display of the gospel through our marriage. It's poor leadership to operate in any other way. What if my husband won't lead? I think that's a fair question for a woman to ask, for a wife to ask. This week has been great for Melody and I, as I've been putting together this message, and we've been having conversations back and forth together. Uh, She was kind of helping me come up with some of these questions, and uh, what would people logically kind of ask out of this? What would a wife logically ask out of this? And in the middle of some of those conversations... She went silent for a minute, which tells me she's got something to say, but she doesn't know how to say it. And so I said, what are you you thinking about? What's, What's going on? And she said, well, there are some areas in our marriage where I'm uncertain as to how it is that you're trying to lead or if you're trying to lead. And that creates confusion for me as to what my role is. And it was the most respectful and honoring and loving thing that she could have done. Because as a man, I want to lead well. I want to care for our family well. And I want to be called to that level when I'm not doing so. If there's one person in the entirety of the world that could call me to raise my level of leadership in a loving way, it's my wife. Submission doesn't mean silence, wives. It means that you respectfully obey at times when necessary, and we'll get to the times when you don't have to, but it also means that it's okay to call your husband to lead your family a little bit better, that you do so lovingly, you do so respectfully. Those can be very positive conversations. Submission does not mean silence, which leads me to the next question. What if you're making a big decision and you disagree? Husbands, if there's a large decision to be made in your family, I hope you want the input of your wife. If Tim Fritzen made all the decisions at the Fritzen house, the Fritzen house would have burned down by now. (laughs) Or the Fritzen marriage would have burned down by now. I hope you want the input of your spouse. 
And if you're arriving at a place where it's difficult to come to a place of unity, I hope you're willing, for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of your spouse, and in an act of sacrifice, to slow down the decision-making process. Spend time praying together. Have good dialogue about it. If it becomes a place where somebody has to make a decision, time has run out, and you have a difference of opinion, that is the place, ladies, where I think this issue of submission becomes most challenging, that you would be willing to say, I do have a difference of opinion, but I trust you. And for the Lord's sake here, I will submit. The caveat to that is, in the event that your husband makes a decision that doesn't go over well, you've also got to be at a place in your own heart where you would be willing to not say, I told you so, when it flies back in his face. That's the place where submission submitting for the Lord's sake, the rubber kind of really meets the road in a moment like that. What if my husband's not a believer? The passage spoke directly to that. In areas where you can, you submit without compromising on God's holy standard, and in so doing, your actions display the gospel not just to the rest of the world, but to your husband. And you may have the opportunity and the joy to see your husband come to faith in Jesus Christ. What are the places where I don't have to submit? There are places wives, where it's okay to not submit to your husband. I'm going to give a list. It's certainly not exhaustive, but I think they're important. You don't have to submit in areas of obvious sin. If your husband is asking you to do something that violates a clear command of the Lord, ladies, you stand on the side of the Lord. You don't submit there. If you're in physical danger, or your children are in physical danger, and your husband's asking you to do something that perpetuates that dangerous situation, you don't submit. You seek help for yourself and for your kids. If there's criminal activity happening within your home, your husband's laundering money from work, or there's some other situation going on, and he's asking you to to submit in the midst of that, you don't have to submit there. If you've got a husband who's not a believer and he's asking you to take part in things that are contrary to the gospel or to take part in things that are false religions, to engage in religious activity outside of the church, outside of Christian uh, activity, you don't submit there. If your husband is engaged in sexual infidelity and you arrive at a place where you don't think it's possible to reconcile and he doesn't seem repentant, the Bible doesn't give a command to get a divorce in cases of adultery, but it does offer the opportunity if you arrive at a place where you don't think your husband is willing to reconcile and try to see the Lord redeem that relationship. Those are areas, wives, where you've got the liberty to not submit. One last question, am I not allowed to care about my appearance? I think that's a logical one that comes out of here. The answer is you can absolutely care about your appearance, but you've got freedom from it being primary. Peter gives you the license to put primary importance on the beauty of your heart and soul before the Lord rather than your outward appearance. That in no way means you're not allowed to care. If you like to dress up and wear nice clothes and those kinds of things, you've got the freedom to do that, but you don't have to become slave to it. I want to wrap up all of this section on submission uh, with just kind of one general thought, and as I do, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. The thought is this. What is it that actually enables a Christian to submit in these places? How is that actually possible? It's an, it's an identity issue. 
Peter builds his entire letter off the truths in the first 12 verses of chapter 1. And if you come to a place where you're certain that your identity is founded on the power of the gospel and that you've got freedom from this world because you've been given an indestructible inheritance in the next one, then you can willingly submit in the areas where we're called to submit in this life. You can do so knowing that ultimately nothing could happen to you here that would alter that eternal reality. You can submit confidently, even joyfully in those areas, willingly for the Lord's sake. And what Peter tells us is that in so doing, our conduct becomes so honorable among those who don't know Jesus that they might turn and glorify him on the day of his visitation. All of this passage about submission is rooted in displaying the goodness of the gospel to people who don't know it. And an identity that's founded on Jesus Christ makes it possible for us to willingly engage in that sort of way. We're going to spend our last uh, 15 or so minutes here worshiping together. So if you would, you can stand. I also want to, to let you know there will be some men on this side of the stage from our men's ministry and some women on this side of the stage from our women's ministry who would love to pray with you. If this stirs up anything within your heart that you feel like I really need prayer about that. Uh, husbands, if you need to understand the gospel a full understanding of the gospel. I can't encourage you enough to come and talk to some of the men from our men's ministry. Wives, if this stirs within you something about a conversation that needs to happen within your home, about uh, a question you might have, I can't encourage you enough to come and talk to some of the women from our women's ministry. We'd love to pray with you. Let's worship together.